0: Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that we would just have a heart of humility. I pray that our heart, God, would have a humble disposition before you, seeking after wisdom as you've revealed to us in your word. And we thank you. I pray that you be glorified. I pray you give me the words. I pray that you would be my strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You got your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9, I've entitled this message, One Greater Than Solomon. One Greater Than Solomon. This morning, we're going to be looking more into wisdom, and we're going to see wisdom really the forefront of what we observe in chapter 10. I was looking online, and I was noticing a discussion amongst men about wisdom. I thought, this is interesting, just because of what I've been studying recently. And a gentleman basically was asking other people to help him with wisdom. And so he was like, look, I want to learn. I want to be wise. It was a sincere request. And here is some of the things he got. And I'm not saying all these things are bad advice. This is bad advice, but I want you to think about this is a, a gentleman saying, I want to be wise, what do you got, right? What do you got? Well, let's see what he, what he had here. I, some of the ones that stuck out, uh, one, one person said, the dreading is worse than the doing. One said, uh, one quoted Emerson, what lies behind you and what lies in front of you pales in comparison to what lies inside of you. The new age class will meet right after the service. Um, <laughs> if you don't like your situation, change it. Again, pithy, good advice. Being the richest man in the cemetery, this is Steve Jobs' wisdom. Being the richest man in the cemetery doesn't matter to me. Going to bed at night saying we've done something wonderful, that's what matters to me. Uh, Another gentleman said the key to success is failure. Another one said failure makes me work even harder. I've never been afraid to fail. Once I made a decision, I never thought about it again. Another one said, always turn a negative situation into a positive situation. Another one said, if you quit once, it becomes a habit. Never quit. On and on and on. I could go on and further and further and further. And and I want us to see, though, wisdom is more than pithy one-liners. Wisdom is bigger than that. And, And I want us to see this because, It's not that I'm wise enough to tell you that. It's that the scripture reveals that to us. The scripture says, let me give you more about wisdom. The world touches the surface and tries to knock off some of the edges with one-liners and with good advice. But again, what we're learning here, you know, what we have noticed is that wisdom is connected to worship. Dr. Tony Marita again, is connected to worship. It's connected to insight. It's connected to discernment. It's connected to purity and living. It's connected to justice. It's connected to a skill of living. And the question is this. I want you to ponder it. How in the world can you have a life that is worshipful, insightful, discerning, pure in morality, just and righteous, skilled in the way you live. And friend, I'm not going to wait till the end to tell you the only way you can ever have such a life is to know Jesus Christ and walk with him. There is no wisdom apart from Christ. There's just good, pithy one-liners. But the totality of And and the whole picture of wisdom is only something that is seen. It's only personified in Jesus Christ. And he is the wisdom. He is our wisdom from God. So now, this morning, I want us to see three observations that I pray would help us lead us to an understanding of biblical wisdom in the context of 1 Kings chapter 9 and 1 Kings chapter 10. So three observations as we've been looking at this. We're sort of slowing down a little bit. We uh, I remember years ago I was traveling in Europe after a missions trip And two of my friends went, they wanted to go somewhere else, and I didn't have time to go as far west as they were going in Europe. So I ended up in Austria by myself on a bus somewhere after getting off a train. And at one point, I decided to get off of the bus because what I saw was something worth seeing. And I just got off the bus, I didn't know where I was, with a backpack, and I just stayed there for a while. And now as we're moving through, we could take a bigger section today, but I really believe we need to slow down and really ask ourselves, is my wife reflective my life? Not my wife. (laughs) That's awesome. Is my wife reflecting wisdom? Ladies, listen. All right. (laughs) Is my life reflecting wisdom? Is my life reflecting wisdom? So the first observation that we've been seeing in our context is, number one, a recap of Solomon, a recap of Solomon. I want us to think again what we've been learning. You know, really, when we got into chapter 3, 4, and 5, we saw an overview of not only his request, but we saw an overview of his life, right? What was, what was the wisdom that you begin to see, and how does the Bible illustrate it? And the Bible illustrates it. And then when you get into chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and even into the first part of chapter 9, it, it's showing more of that displayed in the building of the temple. So if we're going to look at that, how have we seen it? You know, in, uh, in, in, in chapter 3, you have the famous story that it's interesting. Right after we talked about that, uh, they were talking about it on the college football show about two women and the two, the two prostitutes that come before Solomon. And he has to use and exercise judicial justice. And what did he do? He saw right through the matter. God gave him insight and judicial justice as to how to rule and how to act. And that was from chapter 3, verse 16 through 28. In chapter 4, you saw the wisdom on display and how he led his kingdom and the, the decisions he made, the way that he structured it, the administrative-type exercises of wisdom that he, he operated under. In chapter 5, you begin to see this wisdom displayed in his building plans and the way that he navigated an organizational plan to approach the building of the temple. And this was seen not only in his relationships with people, but in his decisions and his thought processes and then you begin to see the fruit of that in the actual building of the temple. And we looked at that last time in, in three chapters. And in chapter six, seven, and eight, you saw the wisdom of how he built the temple, the house of the Lord. And, and, and so now we come into chapter nine, and, and we see, and I want us to continue to look at what we're learning about Solomon. And so we come into chapter nine, and in verse 10, down through verse 14, um, it's interesting, the main point that seems to be mentioned here is that Hiram, not the same Hiram we looked at last time that was part of the building process, but Hiram from Tyre, T-Y-R-E, he gave uh, Hiram, he gave him cities 20 cities in the land of Galilee. And it's, it's interesting because uh, Hiram's not real thrilled about these cities. He didn't really like them. And, and it's verse 13. Therefore, he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul in the Hebrew means basically good for nothing. Like, come on, man. It's interesting because you read over in uh, later on in 2 Chronicles 8, and, and, and one commentator was talking about how Hiram, it appears, gave back these cities to Solomon. He, he wasn't real thrilled with these cities. And, and then Solomon does something with those cities, but they were unproductive. They just weren't real sought after. It wasn't the property. If you're playing Monopoly, you got your mind on the properties you want. This wouldn't have been the, the high point on Monopoly, right? These cities wouldn't have been the cities that you wanted to make your main investments in, apparently. And he, didn't, he wasn't real thrilled with it. But you see there that, that Solomon had a lot of power because he had the upper hand in the relationship with Hiram. And you get on in here and you look at verses 15 through 23. It describes the, the people who basically did the labor for Solomon, you get into some interesting verses about the forced labor of some pagan people that built not just other things, but built many cities in Israel. And, and one of the things that's fascinating about this section is that you learn who these people were. In First Kings 9 verse 20, it says, All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who are not of the people of Israel. You know, we go back into Joshua, we go back into Judges. It's hard sometimes for us to get our mind around the holiness of God. And it's hard for us to understand the way in which God was preserving and God was mandating that his kingdom operate in Israel. And he didn't tolerate sin and he didn't tolerate the pagans. And we have to remember the only way to even approach this is through the holiness of God, So much of how we often respond to what bothers us in Scripture reveals the fact that we don't understand God's holiness. We see things through our perspective, not through a holiness in the majesty of God. Well, one of the things that we read in Psalm 106, it says in verse 34, it says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. And one of the marks of disobedience of the people as they came in to conquer the land in Joshua was that they did not follow through with God's commands, and as a result, they paid the price for many, many, many years to come. And so now, it's amazing how much you learn. I was talking to someone about this this last week. I'm learning. um, If you're learning, I'm learning with you. The thing that we see is that we're getting ready in the next section to see really the downfall of Solomon, and if you know the story that's going to go beyond today in the next couple of weeks, you know about the foreign women and you know about the foreign gods. And so, it, so what we see is, is that the, the, the writer here puts this in here and it seems to even be a little bit of a preview of what is to come about all of the pagan influence that's going to be the downfall of Solomon. But what happens here is we see of this labor force but we see of all these cities that they built. You see, many of the cities mentioned here in 1 Kings chapter nine. If we look and down in verse 21, we see um, you, you go back up to verse uh, 15, and this is the account of the forced labor. It goes down to verse uh, 17. So Solomon rebuilt uh, Gezer and lower. Beth Horon and Balath and Tamar in the wilderness and the land of Judah, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon, and all in the land of his dominion, all the people, and it speaks of the, the workforce there that I just read, verse 21 their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day all of this section, if you go back to the verse that I wanted to read that I missed at the beginning was verse 15. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Millo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Now, now, what's significant about these cities geographically is their importance, the importance of these cities. Um, I was reading in one commentary Six cities formed a line of defense from north to south. Hazor, Megiddo, Gezer, Lower Beth-Horan, Balath, and Tamar. These were fortified towns that protected the people and the trade routes. So everything that he did, again, we we see some trouble lurking in the background throughout this narrative. We see trouble that we could highlight even in the high points. But one of the, the fascinating aspects of his wisdom and his ruling is how he even looked at the fortification of the nation and how he did that. It's fascinating because you go to Megiddo, and there, um, I've been to Megiddo, and it's fascinating to see how what a key city it was in, in, in defense. In the valley there that is at Megiddo, it's unbelievable where we look at in the future for the valley of Armageddon. And Megiddo, that valley there, the greatest battlefield literally that generals have said the world has ever seen. Solomon exercised wisdom. We go on in the story of chapter 9. We see not only the land of worthlessness, Kabul, and we see his workforce and we see the areas they came from that were not destroyed as God had commanded, but we get into verse 24 and we see that he builds a new home for his wife. Again, we're going to see more about the women in his life as we move past chapter 10. But verse 25 speaks about his sacrifices, his sacrifices that he offered on the holy days. And then we read at the end of the chapter in verse 26 and 27, we learn about the navy and the fleet of ships that he had. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. So we get, again, we're coming through all of this. If you haven't been with us, Solomon, he had one request God gave him, and Solomon requested wisdom. He requested wisdom and discernment, and as a result of his request, God gave him the very things he didn't ask for. God not only gave him wisdom, he gave him riches, and as we move through chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, we see the wisdom on display even into the building of the temple in chapter 6, 7, and 8. And Now here we are in chapter 9. We see a little bit more of this. So we not only see a recap of Solomon, but the second observation in the text that we're in today is the testimony of this lady named the Queen of Sheba. Let's read chapter 10, 1 through 13. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom And prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almagwood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers, no such Almagwood wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon, so she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Wow, what a visit from the queen of Sheba. People say she traveled about a thousand miles to come. And when we look at this woman, what we see, this ruler of the Sabaeans. Ruler of the Sabaeans comes a thousand miles wanting to see for herself the reports of this man. Remember back in First Kings chapter 4? If you got your Bible up and flip back there. First Kings chapter 4. And notice what it says in verse 34. In verse 34, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And Queen Sheba was one of the people that came from the ends of the earth to hear the report. Now, let's let's think about this, and let's try to understand and evaluate her response to Solomon, okay? What happens here? She knows, it says, it's interesting wording, she came to, now when the queen of Sheba, verse one, heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, which seems to indicate she knew that this was a God-fearing man, she knew he was a worshiper of Yahweh, and had heard of the wisdom he had received, and she comes to ask him hard questions. The word questions in the Hebrew here is the word that means riddle. It's the idea um, of the riddle. In in some places in the Old Testament, you'll see examples. You remember when Samson would tease the Philistines with riddles in the book of Judges? Same idea. So, So one of the ways in ancient times that an individual, especially a ruler, was demonstrated as wise was to be able to have people come in and ask tough questions. They would ask tough questions, well, more... In this case, it's a natural, isn't it? Here's the wisest man in the world. People all around are testifying of his wisdom. She comes in. She comes in. She's a very prominent lady, and she comes in bearing spices and gold and precious stones, and and, and she's telling him all on her mind. She's not hiding anything from the king, and he's explaining it all. And she's overwhelmed. She noticed the houses he had built, the food, the officials and their seating at the table, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered. I was looking at um, Graham Ryken has a commentary on kings, and, and he wrote it like this, and this helped me. The queen of Sheba witnessed Solomon's wisdom worked out in the government of his kingdom. It's architecture, cuisine, Fashion, worship, administration. After making her state visit to the king's elegant court, after seeing his stylish palace and dining at his sumptuous table, she was left totally speechless. It's fascinating. She saw it and she's overwhelmed, and it says in the text, there was no more breath in her. She's like, I cannot believe this. I'm amazed. Verse 7 speaks of the fact that she now saw what had been told her. She says in verse 7 that the half was not told her. She says it surpassed the report. Then she speaks about how happy were the men, the servants, who continually had the opportunity to stand before Solomon and hear his wisdom. She's overwhelmed, and she sees the effect of his wisdom on his kingdom and on his people, And then she blesses the Lord, and she understands, as a woman that's coming way from another place, she understands that God had shown delight in Solomon for him to have such a gift. She knew it came from God. And then she made the comment in verse 9, it was because the Lord loved Israel that he has made you king to execute justice and righteousness. She's so amazed at her visit. What does she do? It tells us in verse 10, she gave 120 talents of gold. She gave great quantity of spices and precious stones. And the text says that never again came such an abundance of spices as those that the queen of Sheba gave to the king Solomon. Wow. So what happens? Solomon, again, showing the abundant wealth that he had, he puts her gifts They pale in comparison to how he blesses her in her visit. He gives her anything she requests. He's already given her quite a gift bag (laughs) to go home with, and she leaves amazed. So what do we see so far? We see a recap of Solomon. We see the testimony of the queen. And we, you know, at this point, if we stop, we would leave and go, wow, we learned a lot about Solomon, we learned about his navy, we learned about his wisdom, his architecture, his food, his cuisine, all kinds of stuff. But but this morning, we got to go further because Jesus makes a specific reference to this visit. Now, think about that. Phenomenal. So some people, one thing you always got to be careful of when you look at the... Uh, Old Testament, and to all my teens and all my adults here, I I pray that you'd have the same view of the Old Testament that King Jesus did. A lot of progressives would say, no, I don't know about that. Well, you know, I don't know about Jonah and the well. Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus believed in Jonah and the well. He talks about it. I don't know about Adam and Eve. Well, Jesus mentions I mean, on and on and on, what Jesus speaks about, we can take to the bank because he's the Lord, and Jesus had a very high view of the Old Testament because he was the one who revealed it, and when we get here, we see in Matthew 12, 42, I read that to you last time, I'm going to read you another text, Luke eleven twenty-nine 29 through 32, which is the parallel passage in the gospel, so if you've got your Bible, let's look at that text. Luke 11, 29 to 32. So number one this morning, we see a recap of Solomon. Number two, we see a testimony of a queen. Number three, the third point here in the outline, we see one greater than Solomon. Again, we are privileged, we are graced to look back to the cross, where when Solomon was meeting with Queen Sheba, all they knew was or all Solomon knew, were the promises that God had given his daddy. The promises that there would be a leader that would reign. The promise that he gave him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there would be one who would reign eternally on the throne of David, one of David's sons. They're looking forward, we're looking back. And what do we read in Luke 11, 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then Jesus brings up the Queen of the South. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now notice what Jesus then says. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I love that. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see what he's doing? He's going back to the Old Testament. He's saying Jonah was assigned to his generation, and he points back to the woman of the south, the queen of the south. And he points to the reality that her testimony and their response would ultimately they would be responsible in judgment for the way they responded to Christ. And here's the point. Jesus is greater than Solomon for he is the son of God. I was looking at texts that remind you of this. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and 7. Remember the report of the one that would come. The one that we know is greater than Solomon. It said in Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How can he be greater than Solomon? He is unique. He is the God-man. Listen to John 1.18 speak about his uniqueness. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Wow. Christ has made the Father known. Hebrews, remember, we were in there for quite a while. Hebrews 1, right out of the gate. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, That's why he's greater than Solomon. But now I want you to look at something with me, and I want you to gaze into this passage because I love this in looking at the comparisons and some of the contrast as we look at the report of Queen Sheba. Let's look at it through the lens of King Jesus. Queen Sheba comes to King Solomon It says in verse 2, she came to Jerusalem with a very great revenue, with the camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. She came from a long way away to seek out the wisdom of Solomon. She came to see, she came to observe, and I want to ask you a very serious question this morning. Have you? Have you come to see, have you come to observe the wisdom of Jesus Christ? To what length have you gone? She went a 1,000 miles. She did everything she possibly could do. I mean, this was not, you know, jump on a uh, call-up Delta and check your frequent flyer miles and get a flight out to uh, Jerusalem. This is a 1,000 miles in a time and a place when this was not an easy trip. Have you sought out the wisdom of Christ? We can learn a lot from Queen Sheba today. When when Queen Sheba goes to Solomon, it's interesting because if Jesus is greater than Solomon, we could expect, I think, to see some greater equivalents, greater parallels than even Solomon in the way that Queen Sheba praises him. She mentioned that there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. I love this. I was thinking about, we could spend a whole hour speaking about examples, and I could ask you, to say, hey, give me some examples in the Gospels of how Jesus illustrates this. Just a couple that immediately came to my mind is that, you remember Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel? He came to Jesus at night amazed at the wisdom of Christ. You remember the woman at the well who can't help but tell her friends of the man who had told all about this woman? And, and here we see that she reports that there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when we think about Jesus Christ and we think about who he is, I love thinking about Matthew seven twenty eight. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He taught, and they knew it was different because his wisdom was different. In Matthew 13, 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom? And these mighty works. Luke 4, 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? John 7, 15, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? John seven forty six. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. One of the, have you spent time in the Gospels? And I understand it's only by the grace of God we seek. I understand it's only by the grace of God we come. But that doesn't for a moment lighten the responsibility of our call to look and search out these things. I want you to think, have you taken time in your own life and searched out the wisdom of Christ? Teenager, have you taken time in your own life to look into the wisdom of Christ and to what he says in the gospels? Have you looked at the wisdom of the word? Have you looked at his teachings? Have you looked at how he responded to people? Have you come to the place of recognizing this is not like any other man that has ever existed? Queen Sheba when looking at Solomon, came to conclusions that he truly was the wisest person there was, that he met all of the criteria that was being reported about him. But Jesus Christ is far greater. I love this because you see that she reports that the report was true in verse six that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. She mentions all of this In verse 4 and 5, the house and the food and the seating and the attendance and the clothing and the cupbearers and the offerings, she keeps going and she says she now sees it. She sees it. Your your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard this morning. Friend, have you seen the wisdom of Christ? Have you beheld it? If you're really talking to a buddy, and you were talking, you know, where you were comfortable talking, it wasn't an awkward conversation with a friend, and they were basically talking about life and the things y'all naturally talk about, could you look at them in the conversation and say to them, honestly, I'm overwhelmed when I think about the wisdom of Christ. Sheba could say that to her contemporaries. Sheba could say that to the people in her kingdom. She could say that to all that are around her. She testified it here in First Kings chapter 10. But I really want you to think about something here. Have you personally seen the wisdom of Christ? It, not the question, did your grandmother come to understand the wisdom of Christ? Oh, my grandmother was a God-fearing woman. She loved God. She never missed church. But in your life, friend, have you come to see the goodness and the wisdom and the majesty of Jesus. We keep reading here and and look what she says about, um, I I love this because she says, the half was not told me. And I started thinking about where can we find some fun parallels. Isn't it amazing, even as children of God, Christian, that, that 1 Corinthians 2 in light of all that God has shown us, in light of all that God has revealed to us, that 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I love this. She says, your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report. His wisdom, the wisdom of King Jesus, his riches are too much to begin to comprehend. I'm running out of time, but I'm going to take a little bit more time. (laughs) But uh, his wisdom, his riches. I was thinking about, you know, Romans 11 at the end of that chapter. For from him and to him and through him are all things. But then we think about, Christian, this morning, if you have believed on Jesus Christ, and, and, and by grace through faith, you've depended on him for your salvation, repenting of your sins and believing on Christ. Do you realize that, that the riches of Solomon pale in comparison to the riches of King Jesus? Just as Sheba was amazed, just as Sheba had seen, just as Sheba testified of his wisdom and his prosperity, isn't it overwhelming to consider and to think that because Jesus is greater than Solomon, we now see this passage like Romans 9, in order to make known the riches of his glory, for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Just to go through Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. But then we read that those who trust in him The kid that believes on Christ, the elderly woman that believes on Christ, for anyone by grace through faith that comes unto Christ like a little child, we read of the the glory of Christ in you, the hope of glory. that, That Paul would say, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That he would say in Ephesians 1.3 that he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 2.7 that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. There's so many parallels here that are fun to think about. Because you not only see the riches of Christ, but you see Solomon blessing Sheba and giving her riches. The riches that we've been given, the riches in Christ Jesus far surpass any queen that she received. It far surpasses any king, and even King Solomon. I love this. She says, happy are your men. Happy are your servants. It's the picture of blessing. Blessing. Blessed are your men. Blessed are your servants. But think about those under King Jesus. There was a tangible blessing that the people of Solomon's kingdom received but there's one greater than Solomon who has come. And those who believe and depend on him for salvation, they are blessed with his blessings. They are given an inheritance. They are given a position in him where they can't be judged any longer because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The blessing that comes from being united with Christ. And then Sheba says, Blessed be the Lord. I love this, thinking about this. And if you look at verse 9, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you. Think about how the Father delighted in the Son. In Mark 1:11, and a voice came from heaven: You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then Sheba goes on and says to Solomon, He sets you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that he you may execute justice and righteousness. And we know that he does it because of his glory and that primarily. But friend, do you realize that even as we think about Solomon, And we think how the Lord loved Israel, and as a result, he made Solomon king. Do you think about the fact that because the Lord loved us, he made Christ king? But what did he do? He sent his one and only son to die in our place, that we might receive the blessings. And he demonstrates love for us. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It gets better and better and better, and what happened? Solomon was set on the throne to execute justice and righteousness, but there's one greater than Solomon. And in the promise we read earlier in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 that demonstrates the uniqueness of the Son who has come to die in our place, there's another verse in that that I didn't read. It's verse 7, and it speaks of this kingdom that he will rule over, King Jesus. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love this because you could really, there's so many parallels here. We could come up with so many more, but do you notice she's so overwhelmed that she gives a gift to the king? She gives a gift. First Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Romans says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of his, who he is, in light of what he's done for you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And why now? Would she be an example of judgment? The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation. What is your response to Christ this morning? If it's not total worship and total adoration and total amazement, I have a good feeling and we can take it with with good foundations because Christ reveals it, that she would rise up at the judgment with the men of that generation and condemn them. And now, brothers and sisters, we who have received the revelation from God in Christ Jesus in his word, you think Queen Sheba would look at us and say, wait a minute, if I could see it in an earthly man, you mean to tell me that you didn't observe and see the wisdom of this king About the reality that we will give an eternal account for what we do with King Jesus. I've had teenagers before say stuff like this, you know, if you, if you, if you press them a little bit and say, where are you at with Christ? And they'll say, you know what? I'm just not there yet. You know what? I'll figure that out later. And I, and I want to encourage not only teenagers and kids and adults, but I want you to understand that today is the day of salvation. What do we do in response to the wisdom of Christ? Queen Sheba was overwhelmed. She had no more breath. She couldn't even begin to think about the majesty of Solomon's kingdom. And yet here, because of Jesus' words in Luke eleven thirty-one 31 and 32, in Matthew 12, 42, he's calling us to a response to see the greatness of his wisdom. And why is that? He is the God-man. He personified wisdom. Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 24, he's referred to, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And friend, one of the things that that hit me over the last few years, one of the most impactful truths that I learned as a Christian was that, you know, when we look at Proverbs, do you realize Jesus is the fulfillment of the wisdom literature in the Gospels. Think about it. Every warning, every example, everything you read about in the Proverbs, Christ fulfills perfectly in his life. The way he answers some people, the way he doesn't answer others. Over and over and over, because he is wisdom. He fulfills all wisdom literature. Over and over and over and over, we see it. And unlike Solomon, he never altered in his steps. His wisdom and riches are greater. His word makes us wise. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise. For salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, his word grows in wisdom. This morning, have you trusted in the one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom? This morning, look at your life. Think about your life. Are you wise? Because if, something, if, we're, if we're living as fools or if, or if our life demonstrates folly, it illustrates something wrong with ourselves and Jesus. It could be that we've never come to know him. That's a major problem. Because apart from the wisdom of Christ, folly can never be made wise. Fools can never come to wisdom apart from the salvation in Jesus. But friend, this morning, I want you to think of something in my final example. You see, the only way we can demonstrate wisdom, I had a friend in Albuquerque, and and he was a godly man. And his name was Rick, and 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 he was a, a simple guy. He was an engineer, he loved God's word, he was in it all the time. And, and it hit me as I was studying this passage because I would get around him and he was kind, he was insightful, he was discerning, he loved his wife, he was faithful to her in his life and in his mind. He, 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 he was a good man. He was a godly man. But how does that work? How does that happen? You see, here's what happens. Do you remember in the book of Acts? In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And it hit me, and it's hit me over the years. The reason why people in the body of Christ manifest the wisdom of Christ in their lives is because as they walk with Jesus, as they yield to his word, as they humbly seek him in their lives, guess what happens? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The wisdom of Jesus enables them to live a different way. Friend, when we look at wisdom and we look at Solomon, we're looking at wisdom that comes from Christ ultimately. And I pray we would understand the only way our lives can be insightful, discerning, moral, just, righteous, the only way we can demonstrate skill in our living is through the power and the grace of Jesus. It can happen no other way. There's no shortcuts. And where does it begin? It begins with a humble attitude of abiding in Christ, of seeking his word, of of being willing for that word to do a work in our heart and our life to reveal sin to us, to correct us, to train us. But the hope this morning is that unlike Solomon, who had all this wisdom and others just observed it, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, He comes to live within his children, and he enables them to be wise. So today, I could keep going when we're not. I know what time it is. But I'm telling you, I pray you'd see the the life-touching application that's here. I pray that we would understand the only one that can make our lives wise is the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, do you know him? Have you trusted in him? You're going to be eternally responsible for what you do with King Jesus and how you respond. But believers, I pray today, you'd be overwhelmed to think of the goodness that's demonstrated as we reflect on Christ greater than Solomon. And I pray today it would touch you, it would move you, and it would bring you to worship him and reflect on what wisdom looks like in your life. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for, Lord, how, Lord Jesus, you exercise wisdom in in your creation, in your teaching, in your salvation, in your church. You were wise. And I pray today we would understand your amazing grace. And I pray that we would come to see just as Sheba did with Solomon, that the report that we've heard is not even half of what we've seen. Because you truly are remarkable in your grace and your wisdom and your riches. And I pray today, Lord, that that everyone here would see the hope and the wisdom that's in Jesus Christ. And I pray that they would see that while they were sinners, Christ died in their place. And I pray today, Lord, we would see as believers that we are invited to walk in wisdom. We are invited to walk with you in this journey. And Lord, as we get to know you more, As we fellowship with you, as we're changed by your word, your grace changes our life. And it reflects you because it's not us, but it's Christ working in us. So Lord, I pray that that would change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. If you'd stand with me.